Without further ado, let's uh, open up our Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, which we have been in for a number of weeks. We are in chapter 2, verse 18 through 25. I keep saying that we're going through the book verse by verse, but every week that goes by, I keep just getting just these giant chunks of text, just more and more. Next time, we're just going to do the whole chapter, three, uh, chapter 3. But it is, it's just so good. Peter's arguments are deep and intertwined, and this one is no different. Uh, for those of you that are new, we are going through a series through First Peter called A Change in Allegiance, which is largely about people who uh, didn't know Christ, being called to Christ, and what that means, being called out of a, a certain way of living in a change of allegiance to a new Lord and new master. And one of the big themes in this book has been, what does that really mean uh, for our lives here in Santa Barbara and Goleta and Isla Vista and Montecito and is there anywhere else? No Lita? I don't know. Summerland? Carpinteria? This has been the question that has kind of been pervading this book in our minds is what does it mean to live as a Christian who belongs in the kingdom of heaven, yet is living here intentionally and intently in a world that is opposed and even hostile to our way of life, or at least to our kingdom values. How do you balance that tension? Peter's been talking about that a lot, and right now, he's kind of been laying out the principles for that, what it looks like. So one of the things we've been throwing around has been uh, what it means to be a Christian here in Santa Barbara is that we are sent and yet set apart, meaning we are sent here intentionally. We're not supposed to be hiding like hermits in our closet, but we are supposed to be in, fully engaged in our city for the glory of God. And yet we're also set apart. We're not to become like the value system of the world in which we live, we're to look different. And so there's that setness and set apart, set apartness. And right now, in what sometimes people call the household codes, which started last week, Peter is now showing what that looks like in different relationships, specifically ones that were a, a, quite a, a big deal in his world. And we'll learn about what that means for our world and how to apply it, but we are right now in the middle of that. And I'm just going to read uh, for us 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 through 25, all the way through. And as I do it, let's just believe God together that he will minister to us by his word. Amen? Peter says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's holy word. Heavenly Father, so much in this text. We just want to ask you for help today. Obviously, help me. I don't mess it up as it's coming out of my mouth. But also help us to have ears to hear. Not ears merely to hear what the preacher is saying, but ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. I really believe that you have something for the church here in Santa Barbara to further deepen our growth and our understanding and our experience of who you are. Help us to not miss out on that by the distractions of our life, by the mistakes that I might say or make in my preaching, by our own sin. And pray, God, that you would carve a path deep into our soul and that through your word, the spirit of God would speak powerfully to us right where we are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want you to think just for a few moments about this strange occurrence that is sweeping through the globe where the gospel of Jesus Christ is exploding all over the world and yet growing stagnant in a few pockets of the world. An explosive growth, unprecedented in human history, all over the world. And simultaneously, a stagnant form of superficial Christianity in a few other places, namely the West. So America, places in Europe. The Pew Research Center, commenting on this, wrote that the number of Christians around the world has nearly quadrupled in the last hundred years, from about 600 million in 1910 to more than 2 billion in 2010. Now that's a lot. Now that itself isn't actually a big deal because the overall population of the world has also grown. So in the last century, more people have been born and more Christians have been uh, reborn. And so it's actually stayed pretty consistent. For the last hundred years, the population of Christians in the world has hovered around the 30% mark. So it doesn't seem like anything has changed. But as they comment, Pew Research Center, this apparent stability, however, masks this incredibly momentous shift. Although Europe and the Americas still are home to a majority of the world's Christians, that share is much lower than it was in 1910. In other words, a hundred years ago, Christianity was booming in Europe and in America, the center of Christianity. And a hundred years ago, it was almost not to be seen in a lot of these other parts of the world. But right now, Christianity has grown enormously 
in places like sub-Saharan Africa, and I quote, and the Asian Pacific region, where there were relatively few Christians at the beginning of the 20th century. The share of the population that is Christian in sub-Saharan Africa climbed from 9% in 1910 to 63% in 2010. 9% to 63%. While in the Asian Pacific region, it rose from 3% to 7%. Christianity today, and I quote, unlike a century ago, is truly a global faith. So even though the percentage, globally speaking, is the same, we're seeing a tremendous shift in where it is centralized. It used to be in America, it used to be in Europe, and now it's in these other areas. For example, let's compare. In China, professor of sociology, uh, Professor Yang, uh, Yang at Purdue University writes that his prediction is that by 2030, China's total Christian population, including Catholics, would inc- exceed 247 million people, placing it above Mexico, above Brazil, and above the United States as the largest Christian congregation in the world. In contrast, America. The Christian share, and I quote again, Pew Research Center, of the U.S. population is declining, while the number of U.S. adults who do not identify with any organized religion is growing, according to an extensive new survey. So what we're seeing in the world is this incredible vitality all over the world, except where we are. And I want to ask you, why do you think that that is? You could read about it. There's tons of articles positing different things. I just want to suggest, why does the American church's loss of vitality in the midst of a global renewal seem to be happening? And sure, there's, there's pockets of renewal all over America, but over, uh, by and large... It seems to be dry and wanting. It seems to be stagnant and complacent in comparison to the rest of the world. Why is that happening? Especially when where the church is growing most also happens to be where the most persecution is. Perhaps we might get a a little handle on this by remembering one of the church fathers, Tertullian, who in the first centuries looked upon the church back when they were suffering massive persecution, being burned alive and crucified for following Christ, being abandoned and imprisoned and tortured, and yet again, the church was exploding. And he looked upon it and he said famously that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, it's not that the church is growing in spite of suffering. It's that the church is growing because of suffering. Why the loss of vitality in the West, which which experiences so much wealth and comfort and convenience, while the rest of the world that's experiencing persecution is exploding by the power of the gospel? Perhaps that's why. I want to suggest today as we go through this text that it may have to do, maybe, maybe, 
have to do with our inability to suffer well. And I'm not saying here that it's wrong to want to avoid suffering. If you have a headache, take an Advil, okay? If it's noisy outside, close your windows, you know? If you can avoid suffering, do it. Not suggesting that that's wrong. I'm suggesting that that deep-seated aversion to anything that is difficult has seemed to infect and infiltrate even our spirituality and religion in such a way that in many ways it's draining our power and effectiveness and vitality as a counterculture of Christ in our context. And I believe that that suggestion comes straight out of this text from Peter, who starts off by saying to a bunch of servants and slaves in the first century, Servants, I want you to be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and the gentle, not only when, uh, when they're good to you, but I want you to be subject to your masters even when they're unjust. Now, I want to get into the, the, the basic premise of the sermon as quickly as I can, but we simply cannot ignore this first verse without giving it a little bit of proper care. This verse, which has been used in our history as a country, for some of, the, some, of our wor- some of the worst atrocities, slavery. Verses like this and similar ones from Paul that have been used to justify subjecting people in our own history to slavery. I don't have enough time to treat this as I would like to. I've already done it here at our church. If you want to study What the Bible says about slavery, you can listen to a sermon I gave years ago in Ephesians called Does the Bible Condone Slavery? You can search that in our website and listen to me for two hours or whatever it is. If you want to know how Christians now today in light of verses like this should uh, approach uh, systematic injustices like racism, you can listen to a 10-minute talk I gave called The Charleston Shooting and the Christian. You can listen to that. Plenty of material here at our church on that. But suffice to say today that Peter is speaking about something that is very different than what we understand when we hear the word slavery. We read verses like this and understandably we cringe. Because Peter, it sounds like Peter is saying, hey, he's giving kind of an allowance and he's, he's opening up Things like slavery in the modern day, and we have visions in our minds of the transcontinental slave trade and human trafficking today, and hearing Peter say this just makes no sense. But we have to understand, first of all, that Peter is speaking about a completely different form. Still not good. Slavery is never good. But we just have to understand who he's speaking about and the, uh, and the environment and conditions to which he's speaking for this to make sense. Slaves in the Greco-Roman world were much different than the type that we understand. It was often voluntarily, meaning it usually often came about because you were in debt to somebody, and one of the ways that you could pay off that debt was by uh, bringing yourself into slavery for a a temporary time. So there was always an end goal. Number one, it was voluntary. I bring myself into slavery in the first century in order to get rid of a debt. And also, it's not forever. There's like an end goal. It's like paying off a credit card. 
And so I am working to pay off a debt with an end goal in view. And a lot of the slaves that Peter would have been talking about weren't just, you know, uh, induced to hard labor, but these were uh, all sorts of different vocations. You had teachers, you had farmers, you had people working in medicine. Sometimes people were making a lot of money who were also slaves, working off a debt. Now, it's still not a good thing, and this is one of the elements of the curse that God sought to break but very important for us to see that it's not the same. When Peter was telling servants in that day to obey their masters, it's not the same as him telling people in our present day to, obey, uh, uh, to, stay in, uh, uh, to stay or to cause them to stay in places like human trafficking. Nor would Peter have ever blessed the institution of slavery that we know so deeply. But one problem that comes up in this, these texts that rubs us the wrong way, perhaps, is that Peter never outright uh, condemns slavery. Neither does Paul. Jesus doesn't either. Now, Peter doesn't condone it. Even in this text, he addresses slaves directly, something that's never done in that day. In so doing, he is dignifying the person that he's speaking about. He also speaks about them suffering unjustly. Aristotle once said, anything goes with your slave. Treat him however you want. Peter comes along dignifying the slaves in his present day, treating them as human beings made in the image of God, saying, yeah, actually, the way that you're being treated is unjust. So he doesn't condone slavery, but neither does he speak out against it. Why not? Well, Peter and Paul and even Jesus in their day had a different way of undermining evil social structures. Listen to my sermon if you want a more in-depth picture of that from, uh, from a while back. But their intent was not necessarily at that time to turn over social structures, but to reach individual people in those structures with the gospel. And we see this in Paul who instead of speaking out against social structures, actually went out to convert both slaves and slave owners. Philemon is a book, actually a letter that Paul wrote to Philemon. And so when Paul is writing to slaves and masters, he's writing to people in his church who got saved. Okay, now that you uh, are Christians, what does it mean to be a slave and a master? Well, let me tell you. Number one, it means that your brothers... In Christ, it means that you're to treat each other as equals. It means that no one has a master except, uh, except that that master is Christ. And so he's spelling out slowly to people like Philemon, hey, uh, following Jesus has some tremendous implications uh, for what you're doing. And little by little, he's paving the way for these social structures to be destroyed, something that people like William Wilberforce would later take advantage of and bring to fulfillment. So Paul is speaking to Christians in relationship to one another. Peter is speaking to a different relationship. He's speaking to Christians and pagans. He's speaking to Christians who are under the rule of government leaders who are pagans. He's speaking here of uh, slaves who become Christians and find themselves uh, owned by pagan masters. He'll speak later about spouses who are in relationships with pagans. And he's speaking not to the powerful persons in those relationships, but to those who are marginalized the most. 
and he's saying, and he's speaking to them in a missional sense. Here's how you can express the gospel most effectively, by acting this way when you are mistreated. And so because of the differences, because of the discontinuity between uh, his uh, situation and ours, it's very difficult, it's a bit of a stretch to take what he's saying to slaves in the first century and apply them to slaves in the 21st century. Probably the closest example that we would have of taking Peter seriously in the present day is by applying it to employer-employee relationships. For the people that Peter was talking about were teachers and farmers and business owners who happened to be in relationships in which they were deeply mistreated. In fact, we would have to say that all Christians in general who are called slaves of Christ can learn from what Peter's saying right now. But he looks at all of us, specifically those who find ourselves in situations in which we are being mistreated by people in authority above us, and he says, not only do I want you to not run away from that, but I want you to endure it, and I want you to endure it even if you don't deserve it. He goes on to give an explanation of this by saying, it's gracious to suffer unjustly when mindful of God. Grace here means simply God's special favor that comes upon an individual. It's that favor that you don't deserve that comes upon you and enables you to live in a certain way. Unjustly means that it's something that you didn't deserve. So Peter isn't saying right here, I want, uh, he isn't saying, in other words, it's a gracious thing when you endure sorrows that you deserved. He's not saying, hey, you remember that time you got a ticket for going 50 and a 25? Well, you got rewards in heaven because you got that ticket. No, he's not saying that. He's saying it's for those times where you have actually acted like Christ, where you've walked in Christ and you have suffered for it. You have done righteously and you, yet you have uh, experienced unjust treatment because of it. That is unjust. When he says, when mindful of God, he's saying, when you have done those things out of a conscious commitment to your God. So if we were to put all of this back together and rephrase it, Peter is saying something like this. When you endure suffering for something you did out of intentional obedience for God, God's presence is with you in a very special way. When you endure suffering for something you did out of an intentional obedience to God, God's presence is with you in a special way. And Peter goes on to say, why in the world would anyone want to do this? And he goes immediately to Jesus. Jesus did the same thing for you. Verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Christ suffered for us. And Peter immediately begins quoting Isaiah chapter 53. You ever read Isaiah chapter 53? It's this depiction of the suffering servant, this person who, is, uh, who suffers for the will of God on behalf of other people. And this was a, a very special character in Jewish faith and religion. Uh, uh, the, he- the ancient Hebrews had in their minds, especially in Isaiah, two figures in God's uh, kingdom economy. One was the Messiah, who would come and rescue them by the sword, who would bring the kingdom of God with power. 
And then there was this suffering servant who came in and who would, uh, who would be a servant to all, who would take on suffering as a form of virtue in order to express another element of the heart of God. And the Jewish people believed that there were two people involved in this. And Peter comes along and says, oh yes, there is a Messiah and there is a suffering servant and they're the same person. And that person is Jesus. And he switches this uh, on, on their, he switches their idea on their heads that the Messiah would first come to annihilate Rome and to destroy their enemies and actually says, you know, actually the Messiah is going to come to serve and serve so much that he's going to die. And he goes on to express Jesus enduring the deepest level of suffering by dying the death of a slave. A death that was so cruel and awful, it was reserved for only traitors and slaves. Not only does Jesus call us, those who are, are, uh, not only does Jesus call slaves to endure suffering, but he actually says, I took on, I identify with those who are slaves by becoming that which you are and dying in that place. Not only does Jesus endure the deepest level of suffering, but he endures the deepest level of freedom while he's doing it. Peter goes on to say that in his mouth was no deceit. In his mouth was no reviling. You know what reviling is? Is to criticize uh, with, uh, with a, it's to criticize abusively, to hurl insults. He didn't do that. There was no threatening, no deceit, no reviling, no threatening. In other words, no sins of the mouth. I love this. Jesus was famous for speaking about the condition of our heart as being the problem for everything else that happens in the body. He went deeper than just the behaviors and the actions of humanity. He said all of those things come from the heart. And he was also famous for saying that you can tell what's in your heart by what comes first out of your mouth. The symptom of your heart is what comes out of your mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. And here we see in Jesus' life, in the midst of tremendous suffering, no sins of the mouth. Jesus was free on the deepest level of the heart. This isn't just a mere stoic resistance, like, I'm going to take this. This is heavenly power to endure the worst that the world can throw at us. Now, we love this at this point. We love hearing about Jesus suffering for us. And we love that his suffering set us free and healed us. By his stripes we were healed. It's the next line that we have a hard time with. When Peter says, In doing this, he was leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That word example comes from the Greek word hypogramos, which uh, Clement of uh, Alexandria used to refer to a wax seal, hypogramos. A hypogramos was a wax seal that teachers used to impress with letters. They would impress letters into this wax seal so that children could learn the alphabet by copying the seal. Hypogramos. And so they would press letters into the seal and the, other, the, the children looking would either copy it or trace it or, some, uh, or of some nature. Peter comes along and he says, Jesus left you as a hypogramos, this, this pattern of suffering so that you might follow in his steps. That wax seal then 
is the way that Jesus suffered. Peter would go on to say in chapter 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Hopogramos. I am giving you a hypogramos, Jesus is saying, so that you might follow in my steps. To this is what you have been called. This is a part of your Christianity. Some of you were to be asked, what is the point of Christianity? What would you say? Perhaps a lot of people would say, not you, of course, but people out there, would say, well, it's to live a great life. It's to live my best life. It's to be happy. It's for things to get better. Isn't that what Jesus is all about, is making my life better and easier? But if you look at the apostles' words, they don't say that. Jesus doesn't either. Oh, yeah, it's a better life but it's a different, better life than what many of us envision. Paul said that those believers whom God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. The point of Christianity is for you to become like Jesus. I can tell by your blank stares that you are waiting for the good news. It's like, okay, this is the worst sermon ever. I should have stayed home today. Preacher's telling me that I need to suffer more as if I wasn't suffering enough already. Listen, I get it. It's very difficult for us to handle, I think. It's very difficult for me to handle some of these parts of the Bible because of the culture in which we have grown up in, which is so superficial and consumeristic and individualistic. Everything in our lives is centered around us and our superficial happiness. So, yes, these callings are very foreign to us. In fact, the brand of religion in America has duped so many people into believing this very thing, that following Jesus is going to result in an easier life for you. And it might not. Paul said all of those who wish to to have a a godly life are going to be persecuted. All you need to do is look at some of the New York Times bestsellers for the last 10 years in the religious department to get a glimpse about what Christians feel following Jesus is all about. I'm sure there's a, a few that come along that are really good, but generally speaking, the last 10 years on the New York Times bestseller list, if it's a religious book, it's either one of four themes, heaven, prosperity, the rapture, Or new thought. I don't mean good books about heaven, like Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. I mean books about how we were suffering and we got caught up into heaven, or there's a vision of heaven, or there's this of heaven. Not that those things don't happen, but what do those things stir up in people that they want to buy them so badly? Does it have to do because we we want to escape our suffering? You have books about heaven 
which theme is, it's better out there somewhere. You have books about prosperity that say, well, God will give me a nicer life here if I obey him. You have books about the rapture that tell you, God, take me away from here. I want to escape. And when he doesn't do that, there are always books about new thought and Christianity that say, well, maybe I can just think a better life into existence when those other things don't work. It's better over there. God will give me a nicer life here. Take me away because you didn't do that. You didn't do that either, so maybe I can sink it into existence. That's what people love to read. We avoid suffering and hardship and inconvenience. And what's worse is that we have the knowledge and technology and resources to do that in spades. Now, again, it's not inherently bad. What's bad is that that way of thinking has infiltrated the way that the church approaches Jesus and life in general, and yet with an added spin. Not only do we have the knowledge, technology, and resources to avoid suffering, but we have the knowledge, technology, resources, and we believe God who wants to rescue us from suffering as well. And yet he calls us into it. So deeply entrenched into our way of thinking and even our spirituality, this aversion to difficulty, is it? That it may be really hard even to begin to understand some of these passages in the scripture. We don't even have a framework in our culture to understand how in the world Peter and the disciples, after being flogged, could rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. They, re- they, they, they rejoiced. Or how Paul and Silas, after being flogged and imprisoned, could sing hymns late into the night. So much so that the jailer gets saved because he thinks they're wacky. Or how James the apostle would tell us to consider it a joy whenever we meet trials of various kinds. This is really hard to understand. Because we don't even have a framework for that. Everything in our culture and society tells us suffering is to be avoided at all costs. And here's money and knowledge and technology and even some Bible verses in order to do that. While Jesus himself says, I want you to embrace it for my namesake. Even at my best, I can withstand suffering at my best. If I'm at my best. But I certainly do not embrace it. And given the choice, I would avoid it at all costs. And many of us do. Why the aversion in our culture to hardship? Perhaps it's because deep down in our desires, we want to be happy and free like every other human being. But for us, happiness and freedom is wrapped up in this, in this desire to protect ourselves. When we think of freedom, we think of self-preservation. That if I protect myself, if I watch out for myself, then I will be truly satisfied. Jesus comes in on the scene and says, actually, true freedom is wrapped up in self-denial, not self-preservation. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself 
and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will will actually save it. You hear what he's saying? Actually, you're going to lose if you keep preserving yourself. If you want to experience true joy and true freedom, it's by giving up your own life in order to find mine. Now, when he says to take up your cross, he's not saying put on cross embroidered jewelry, although that's cool if you want to do that. But you have to understand how weird that would have been in the first century. This was a tool of execution. You know what Jesus is saying? It's as disturbing as if he would have said today, you want to follow me? Get ready to sit in the electric chair. In fact, pick it up. Now to the original apostles and disciples, that call would have been literal for many of them. They would have died following him. But for all people, it is definitely metaphorical in the sense that he's calling us to a certain death. Death to living life on our own terms. Jesus is saying, you want to follow me? You want to experience eternal life? It's time to lose your life. To endure whatever you have to endure, in, uh, to endure in order to experience me. It's self-denial for the right reasons. Now, this is a really important distinction because suffering, that's something that all people go through. It's not noble in itself to suffer. Everybody's going to suffer. Suffering is in itself noble. Self-denial is noble. Self-denial is a particular type of suffering. Self-denial is a Christian approach to suffering. Self-denial is essentially suffering out of intentional obedience to God. It is saying God is so valuable to me. He is so much more valuable to me than all of these things, my security, my comfort, my stuff, my belongings, my people, my relationships, my stuff, that I'm actually willing to lose any of these stuff. I'm willing to suffer the loss, Paul says, of these things if it means that I can continue to experience him. Self-denial, Christian suffering. Self-denial is saying no to something that is temporal in order to say, to, uh, to say yes to something that is eternal. And if you think of suffering in that way, not just the huge faces of persecution and ridicule, although that's included, but also the small pictures of self-denial that we experience on a daily basis. Every authentic Christian act is actually an endeavor in self-denial. Think of anything that you do to faithfully follow Jesus Christ. You're called to love someone else. Well, what is that? It's putting that person's needs above your own. It's putting that person's well-being in place of your own. Suffering your well-being. Denying yourself. What is forgiveness? It is choosing to, uh, to put your desire for vindication and revenge on the line so that you can show forgiveness and love to someone else. Suffering. In a small form. What is generosity? It is giving something that you actually want and value to bless someone else. And on and on and on, every authentic Christian act has some essence of self-denial in it. This is interwoven in the call to follow Jesus Christ. Interwoven in the call to be conformed into his image. 
And the world looks at this and says, self-denial is nonsensical. Jesus says, actually, it makes all the sense in the world. I'll change your life through some of the worst situations in your life. And he is right now forming a hippograph, a wax seal, to form you into his image as we enter into his cruciform life. Here's some of the ways that it affects us for good. We see the ways in which we suffer, but how do we experience the freedom? Well, we experience it in our inner life. I love how Paul said this in Philippians 3. I want to know Jesus Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship in his sufferings. That his inner life is somehow enriched, not at the high points of prosperity, but at the low points in the valley where God ministers to a person's soul through their suffering. Peter would go on to say, now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Not only our our experience in the inner man with God, but also our outward holiness is changed through some of the difficulties in our lives. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. We read that in chapter 1, verse 15. How does he do it, though? Through suffering, that we might die to sin, verse 24, and live to righteousness. Peter will go on to say in chapter 4 that the person who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It is that breaking on the inside where we are faced with two different loves. I love my, lo- my old life. I love my uh, sinful values, but I also love God, and those things are coming into a collision with one another, and we get to choose between each one. And every time we choose God, we are suffering in the flesh, growing in holiness. But those two things aren't the point of the sermon. The point of the sermon, as I said earlier, was that the part of this loss of vitality in the American church must be partly due to its inability to suffer well, which Jesus and all of his apostles seem to think is an important element to following Jesus. What do we do? Peter says two things in this book to kind of bookend the section that we're in. He says in chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's over here at the beginning. Then over here at the end in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, look at this. It's almost like a bookend. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Two passages about how to live in context, sandwiching a bunch of stuff about suffering. When people always read this, a lot of people read this passage about giving an answer for the hope that is in you as like this apologetic thing. Like, I'm on the school campus. Someone asks me about the validity of the Bible. I give them a reason for my belief, and I just did First Peter chapter 3. Like giving intellectual reasons. But that's not what Peter is necessarily talking about. He's speaking about suffering. He's saying, if you suffer well, people will look at you like you're weird. 
And they may even ask you what your problem is. And in that moment, you can give them an answer for the hope that is in you. How can they ask us, though, how we're suffering if we're constantly surrounding ourselves with things that keep us from suffering? How can they ask us about the hope that is in us when it looks like on the outside that our hope comes from the same exact places that everyone else in the world does? And contrasting that with the experience of so many Christians around the world, we see people around the world experiencing tremendous suffering and also tremendous power. Francis Chan recently told a story, I think it was a few weeks ago, when he visited China and he sought out leaders in the underground church. This is why. The underground church grew to about 100 million people under communist rule. 100 million people under a regime that wanted to suppress it. And he went over there wanting to learn from them. Okay, what, what are you guys doing? What are you doing here? Because I want to take what you're doing here and bring it over you know, to my place. And a couple of the leaders in the underground church movement told him, you know, there's, there's basically five pillars to the underground church in China that we live by. One is prayer. We like to pray. Second is the word. You're not just sermons, but like the community of Christ just always in the word together. Third is the spread of the gospel. We really feel strongly about evangelism, that we're always giving ourselves to speaking about the gospel. Fourth there's this expectation of miracles in the underground church. We just, we read the Bible, we see what happens, we just expect it. We just expect that stuff to happen. Chan goes on to say the fifth one blew his mind. The fifth pillar in the underground church is that we embraced suffering for the glory of Christ. We embraced suffering for the glory of Christ. I just want you to think about this for a moment. In our culture and in our country, there are many churches that embrace the first four. There are churches who pray. There are churches who love the word of God, who value the word of God. There are churches who are big on evangelism. There are churches who love and expect miracles. And I hope... All of those four are a part of our culture as well. But are there churches who embrace suffering? That is, I got to confess, that's not like the first thing that comes to my mind when I roll out of bed. God, I I just can't wait for the suffering that's going to come to me today for your name's sake. Bring it on, Lord. You brought it on yesterday, but no big deal. Give me more. No! But that's, you know, without becoming weird, strange, and creepy, I'm also wondering, is there something that I'm missing? 
When I look at the Bible and the apostles and Jesus and world history and current events, I have to say, yeah, maybe. And I want to ask us, as we prepare to close, what would happen? Just, just a what if. Just a what if. Not going to make us do anything weird or strange. Just a what if. What if we were a church, as weird as it sounds, that embraced suffering? Just let your imagination go for a bit. Francis Chan spoke of these events where he was in meetings with the underground church and he would say, you know, I, I was in these groups and there were people who were laughing about persecution. Like not only was it a normal part of their life, but they, they were like joking about it. There, would, there was this guy in this group and he was like, yeah, they were just talking, joking like, oh, the other day I had to hide over here and they were shooting at me. It was awesome. <laughs> it was like a source of their fellowship, like embracing and rejoicing Suffering certainly comes my way, but when it does, I usually tell God, why are you putting me through this? If I'm faithful to you, why are you putting me through this? What if we became a church that embraced difficulty for the sake of Christ? What if when difficulty came our way, our response to it was, yeah. Bible says that these momentary light tri- uh, trials are temporary in the face of the glory that will be shown to me on the last day. Bring it on. Oh man, I, 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 I was faithful and I sought first the kingdom of God the other day. Like everybody hated me before. Yeah, means I'm doing something right. <laughs> Thank you, God, that your presence is upon me in a special way. I'll tell you what will happen. We would be unstoppable. If suffering could do nothing to the Christian but cause them to rejoice in Christ, we would be unstoppable. And the church in China is unstoppable. Nothing can stop them. Not the cultural revolution, not communism, not the secret police. Nothing can stop them. Why? Because the worst that the devil can think about, the worst in his ingenuity that he can come up with is still not enough to tear a human being from the tremendous love of God and it simply fuels their fire. What if the church in Santa Barbara became like that? What if everyone in your workplace got to know you as the person who could never get torn down by circumstances, that in you was an anchor so deep that nothing could peel you away? Do you think that they would begin to ask questions about your faith? You want to know what it looks like to be faithful in context? You're like, I'm a janitor. I don't get to do Bible studies at work or preach the gospel. How can I live faithfully, suffer like a Christian? Suffer like a Christian as the Spirit of God conforms you to his image. You'll start to get some of those conversations opening up. This is part of what it means to be sent yet set apart. And I just want to confess today, I'm just not always there. 
I'm looking at this, I'm telling you this, but the truth is I want to avoid any level of difficulty. And these passages that tell me to embrace suffering for the, for the name of Christ, they seem so foreign to me, but I believe God can change the way I view suffering. And perhaps he can change the way we view suffering if we let him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up today as we sing. The wrong thing to do today would be to go into Santa Barbara and be like, okay, God, make me suffer. Or to feel bad that we have easy, prosperous lives, you know? I think maybe a way to start for us is to just continue doing what we've been doing for years together, learn to abide in Christ and allow him to work deeply in our hearts, value and worship of him over everything else. And as that begins to grow, we just begin to practice small steps of self-denial. Oh, I need this, but I'm gonna give it away. Well, that person wronged me, but I'm gonna try to love them. Lord, help me. If you're having trouble even wrapping your minds around that, maybe you can just pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, we confess that our love for comfort is so powerful. Sometimes if, we, if the truth were to be told, we, we love comfort more than we love you. We also, as followers of Christ, who do want to count the cost. We, we don't want that to be true of us. We just know that we're powerless to change ourselves. We're so ingrained in the city of Santa Barbara and we're powerless to, to pull ourselves out of that way of thinking. And so we just come to you, our father, our daddy, and just ask you, that you would draw us to yourself in such a way that our willingness and ability to endure loss for your sake would just begin to grow continually over time. That we just begin to see you as better than everything. And we pray that the effect that that has on us would be a closer relationship between us and you, a closer relationship between each other, and an explosion in holiness in our lives that leads to an undeniably visible change in our lives that will serve as a powerful witness to the world around me that you are real. The people around us that you are real. If this truly is what you've called us into, show us how worthy you are of us following you into that. And now as we sing, we just pray that you would meet us right now. Some of us are suffering, going through difficulties and hardship. Thank you for that truth that never gets old. Your nearness is our good. And our difficulties do not prove that you have abandoned us or that you are disappointed with us or that you have left us. But in those moments, we might actually sense more of your goodness than ever before. So Lord... Bring it on. In Jesus' name.